This is Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring some of the best live talks from the Sydney Opera House. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby. It's 100 years since suffragettes won the right for some privileged English women to vote, and this anniversary got us thinking about the milestones of feminism across time. In a panel called From Suffragettes to Social Media, we featured speakers on each wave of feminism. Historian Barbara Kane on the first wave, iconic second waver Anne Summers, Rebecca Walker speaking to the third wave, and playwright Nakia Louie rounding out the panel by posing the question, is there a fourth wave? This session of All About Women was hosted by me. So I wanted this event to provide a context for where we are today and an opportunity for us to turn to our mothers, our grandmothers, our great-grandmothers and so on and say thank you. Bloody good work. Your struggle has really paved the way for us to be able to live in the way that we do today and we've got a lot more to go. We've got a ton left to do. Reproductive rights, the right to be free from violence and harassment at work and in our everyday lives, equal pay, representation at the highest levels across all institutions, government and business. And that's just in the privileged world most of us live in. There are millions of women around the world who don't have access to even the most basic rights and freedoms, just because they're women or girls. So I'm hoping that an intergenerational conversation between a group of brilliant and thoughtful women will help us continue to yell, to write, to make art, and to work to make lasting change. So, I'd like to introduce the panel. Speaking about the first wave of feminism today is academic and historian Professor Barbara Kane. She's spent the bulk of her career at the University of Sydney, where she's now the head of the School of Philosophical and Historical Inquiry. And it was Sydney Uni too, where she founded and directed the Women's Studies Centre in 1990, of which I'm proud to say I'm a graduate. She's an international authority on the history of feminist and, uh, on the history of feminism and gender, especially in the 18th and 19th centuries, and has written too many books to mention, except to say that you should definitely read them. <laughs> Anne Summers was a huge figure in the second wave in Australia. She was a trailblazer for women's liberation, setting up, among other things, the first refuge in Australia for women escaping domestic violence, as well as uh, the first Australian Journal of Women's Studies. Her book, Damned Whores and God's Police, first published in 1975 and republished regularly since, is a classic of Australian feminist writing. She edited Ms. Magazine in New York from 1986 to 1992, advised Australian governments at the most senior level, including as head of the Office of Status of Women for Paul Keating, where she refused to accept the implicit patronising sneer of the title Femocrat. Mm. Today, she continues to write and commentate on all sorts of issues from her home, which is now once again in New York City, but we continue to claim her as our own. <laughs> mm. Here to talk about the third wave is a woman whose feminist pedigree is possibly unparalleled in all the world. <laughs> her mother is the hugely influential second waver Alice Walker, who also wrote the novel The Colour Purple. Her godmother is Gloria Steinem, you guys. <laughs> But it does Rebecca a huge disservice to introduce, her merely, to introduce her merely by announcing her mother's. Rebecca literally coined the term third wave in a searing essay for Ms. Magazine in 1993 and has since then edited and written so many books about feminism, masculinity, motherhood, a novel that's about to be made into a movie and a best-selling autobiography, which is a really, really good insight into um, the mind that developed the third wave. And today's generation, which I'm reluctant to call the fourth wave because it's still figuring out what it is, it's an incredibly diverse movement, today's feminism, um, but ably trying to speak for her generation as much as that is possible is Nakia Louie, a Gimilaroi Torres Strait Island woman, playwright, screenwriter, actor, commentator and podcast host. Her play, Black as the New White, is currently having a triumphant revival down the road at the Rospacker Theatre here in Sydney. Her TV comedy series, Kiki and Kitty, is on ABC iView right now, and you have to watch it. It's all about vaginas. And her <laughs> podcast with Miranda Tapsell, Pretty for an Aboriginal, is completely legendary. An episode of it, in fact, was recorded live here this afternoon to a sold-out house. Could you please join me in welcoming these fantastic women to our stage today? Enthusiastic. <laughs> a lot of them. Yeah. That helps. 
Hello, I'm here to sort of fill out a little bit the first of the videos, I think, and to talk about the, um, the first phase of feminism. I'm dealing with the period of feminism that covers roughly the century from the French Revolution to the First World War, and it's a phase concerned with the emancipation of women and the advocacy of women's rights. I think it's quite useful to, use the, to think about the terms as well, and feminism is one, the first I want to talk about. The term feminism came into use towards the end of the 19th century. Um, it's defined, as you can see, by the Oxford English Dictionary as the advocacy of equality of the sexes and the establishment of the political, social and economic rights of the female sex. It was used um, in Britain and America in the 1890s, but I think the word begins to be accepted about 100 years after what most feminists would see as its beginning. The start of feminism, as we understand it, occurs in the late 18th century in lots of ways in conjunction with the French Revolution. Um, and it's, a time, it's at a time when there are new constitutions being written, when declarations of the rights of man are being promulgated, and when it becomes absolutely clear that the rights of man are sex-specific. They do not extend to women as well. Mary Wollstonecraft, who's regarded by many as the sort of one of the founding figures of Anglo-American feminism, made this very clear in her first book called A Vindication of the Rights of Woman, of Woman which was written in six weeks of white-hot anger in 1792. And it was written as Wollstonecraft's... Something's gone wrong. Ah, no, let's go back. It was written, as Wollstonecraft's preface makes clear, the preface is addressed to one of the people involved in framing the French Constitution, and she asks the question about why it should be the case that if men are deemed to have political rights as a virtue of their humanity and particularly their capacity for reason, the last sentence makes that absolutely clear. Who made man the exclusive judge if women partake with him the gift of reason? So it's that notion that men are being given rights for qualities that women have too, but they're being denied to women, that in some ways is a sort of stimulus for 19th century feminism. And Wollstonecraft's text is a detailed elaboration um, of, of the, the way that the sexual difference and ideas about sexual difference conspire to, to deny to women any interpretation that they're reasonable or indeed to deny them the education that makes them rational. Of course, one of the things that's obvious right throughout the 19th century, and I think it connects in a, in a complicated way the 19th with the 20th century, is the question about which, who, what woman it is whose rights are being vindicated. Who is the woman whose rights Wollstonecraft is writing about, and who is the woman who's the subject of all the 19th century campaigns for women's rights? And by and large, it's a white woman, a European woman, and quite often also a property-owning woman. So one of the things about 19th century feminism is, while it's a demand by women for inclusion in the rights of man, and in citizenship and the state, it is also in many ways exclusionary. It's talking about some women, but by no means all. So the, the, the women's movements and the feminist movements begin in the middle of the 19th century in the United States and the United Kingdom, demanding a number of different kinds of rights for women, rights to education, um, custody rights, rights to employment and to education, but most particularly um, citizenship and and legal and political rights. One of the interesting things about 19th century women's movements, particularly in the mid-19th century, is they link quite closely with abolitionist movements, with movements for the abolition of slavery and the emancipation of slaves. There's many reasons for this, but I mean, two main ones are quite clear. One is that, that the emancipation of slavery and the, and the demand for women's rights drew on the same kind of liberal humanist sentiments. So it's quite likely there will be the same group of people who would be engaged in that. And it's interesting to note some women move from one to the other. So the American suffrage leader, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, for example, began life as a campaigner in, for the abolitionist cause and turned to women's rights when she was at a convention in, the United, in Britain and was this, found that she was not able to speak from the stage as a woman. She then moved back to the United States and set up the first Women's Rights Convention. But the other thing that's important here, and the Mill quote makes that very clear, is the strong sense of similarity between the situation of women, especially married women, and of slaves. 
And the point that Millie's making is the, 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 the way in which, on marriage, a woman gives over her legal identity to her husband. So a 19th century married woman in Britain, the United States, Australia, most other countries, a married woman has no right to any money, either both her inheritance and her earnings belong to her husband, her body belongs to her husband, her children belong to her husband. He can imprison her for quite a lot of the 19th century to ensure the fulfillment of his um, of the domestic and sexual services. Um, and so in that kind of way, she's deemed to be like slaves. One of the things, though, that's extraordinary here in Mill's comment, the notion that um, that while women are better treated than slaves, no slave is a slave to the full extent of, of, of a wife, is that Mill seems to have no knowledge at all about the existence of black women slaves. I mean, he's doing this curious thing of comparing a black male slave with a white married woman. <clears throat> Now, in the 19th century, campaigns for women's rights um, begin in the mid-19th century, and they go on right through the 19th century, with the vote becoming more and more important. Many of the women who are involved in the suffrage campaign are very careful to ensure that their campaign is a genteel one that doesn't threaten notions of femininity. In lots of, they're always having to try and influence male legislators, in some cases their family members, so they don't really want to shock anybody too much. In an audience like this, only pretty women would have been allowed to sit at the front if this was a suffrage movement. Anybody who looked strong-minded was always kept at the back of the hall. <laughs> <laughs> But of course, one of the problems about all of this, so one of the problems about this is it was very genteel, it was very continuous, and nobody took any notice of it, really. Um, so um, the, the I just want, I like that one. The, the, the women who advocated women's suffrage are called suffragists, and they're very, very respectable women, as you can see, always, you know, correctly dressed and always showing themselves off in that kind of way. There's a slight change in this in the, in the 1890s when the, there's the advent of the new woman in, in English literature, when there's a revolt against Victorian um, sexual conduct and Victorian sexual modes. But the real change begins in the early 20th century with the advent of the Women's Social and Political Union, the militant campaign that's associated with Emmeline and Christabel Pankhurst and their followers. Christabel Pankhurst begins this campaign in 1905 when instead of just sort of talking at a carefully organized meeting, she interrupts a political campaign. The suffragettes believe that you had to actually take the fight to political parties and make political parties endorse women's suffrage. And Christabel Pankhurst went to a political meeting, stood up in the middle and said, what about votes for women? This was very shocking, I have to say, in 1905, and she was unceremoniously thrown out of the hall and handed over to a policeman at whom she spat and who then arrested her. And, and she was arrested and then went to court. She made a speech from the dock. She was offered the alternative of fine or imprisonment. She chose to go to prison. And then when she came out of prison, there was a huge demonstration to welcome her. So it's kind of game on in an entirely new kind of way. Um, and the... the, the um, Pankhurst and her followers have an absolute gift for, the most, for generating publicity. Big demonstrations, carefully, carefully costumed, confrontations with the forces of law and order, and particularly um, courting arrest. Now, the term suffragette is coined at this time by the Daily Mail, and it's intended initially, it, it differentiates the suffragettes from the suffragists. It's term... It's, coined initially as a way of kind of demeaning, making diminutive the little suffragettes. They're militant and they're a bit of a nuisance. But they went on to become a much bigger nuisance. Um, the, within the WSPU, amongst the, 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 the suffragettes, militancy escalated. So it starts off as in, in being involved with these political campaign speeches. But in the period from 1906 to 1913, the, 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 the suffragettes move on with this. Um, into property damage, um, burning of letterboxes, acid burning of cricket pitches. My favourite is always the walking down Oxford Street with a little hammer in a muff and smashing shop windows. Um, and then moving on later than that, in 1913, to arson, burning down buildings. It was always property that was damaged. They were careful not to damage people. It was also always done quite publicly, so the suffragettes who'd smash a shop window would wait afterwards to be arrested, because part of the purpose was to be arrested, go to prison, 
prison, speak from the dock, and then have the whole big celebration on, on coming out of, of prison. It's interesting also that they didn't smash the windows of Selfridges, because Harry Selfridge was very clever, and he supported the suffragettes. So <laughs> he designed costumes for them to demonstrate in. Anyway, in, once women were arrested, they began to demand that they be treated as political prisoners and not as common criminals. And after about 1908, um, the suffragettes in prison went on hunger strikes. And this led... There's the Pankhursts. Um, and, sorry, I should have said, put, put this one on before, but, I mean, that's one of the big demonstrations from, from prison to victory that, that was organised once the, the, the Pankhursts and others were released from prison. In prison, when women began hunger striking, the government decided to, um, to introduce force feeding as a way to deal with this problem. And this allows for another set of, of, of campaigns and publicity, the notion of torture in prison, a kind of suggestion that it's not entirely unlike rape, as women are forcibly held down with things inserted inside them. <clears throat> And this begins to show one also the kind of suffragette sense of self-sacrifice, that this is the fight for the vote is really a fight to the death. Um, the suffragettes are very keen to show women's vulnerability, to show women as well-bred ladies actually confronting the physical and violent forces of the state. And you can see that in that kind of demonstration. Christabel Pankhurst always said suffragettes must not be dowdy, they're dressed in white, they always look very elegant, and there's a contrast always between their white clothing and the sort of rough, um, dark-coloured suits, particularly of policemen. So the suffragettes then are very, very dramatic. It's interesting to note that they're a very small group. The suffragettes... The WSPU is run by Emmeline and Christabel Pankhurst. They brook no opposition. Many people don't agree with the escalation of violence that goes along with um, the militant campaign, and anybody who disagreed with the Pankhurst is excluded from the movement. It's run like an army. It's not a political party. It's an army, and it's there to make this particular kind of fight. What's interesting, of course, though, is that while they're a small group, they absolutely transform the rest of the suffrage movement. The suffragettes number only a few hundred, but over 50,000 women joined the suffragists. So in Britain, in the United States, in Europe, the, the fact of the suffragettes kind of transforms and galvanizes the suffrage movement. Money pours in, newspapers cover the story, it becomes much, much bigger news. Um, and the, the, the problem with it is exactly where it's going to go. And, of course, all of this comes to an end with the First World War. And so that's when first-wave feminism kind of ends. Um, I think one of the things about the suffragettes that's interesting in all of this is the way in which they add a sense of urgency to the campaign with... Um, things like the demonstration of torture against women. So the suffragettes add a sense to the vote that the vote will also bring about the end of the sexual oppression of women. And they critique male sexual profligacy and the way in which male sexual profligacy brings venereal disease and infects innocent kinds of women. So they're making it a much, much more urgent kind of campaign. But while they transform the campaign and while they make it more urgent and while they give it an incredible kind of energy, it's important to note that ideologically they're not very different from their earlier feminist foremothers. The kind of vote they're talking about is still a vote for women on the same terms as men, that is to say it's a vote for white propertied women. Um, and indeed, the suffragettes have very little time even for working-class women, let alone for any women anywhere else. So they leave us with a movement, I suppose, a kind of legacy of an incredible kind of energy, but the need, which will be discussed by the rest of the panel, I think, the need to find a way to transform feminism from this quite closed and exclusive movement into a much more inclusive one. I would like to um, start by acknowledging that we're meeting on the land of the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and future. And I'd also like to just give a shout out to uh, the audiences who are watching this session around the state and around Australia and in New Zealand via streaming. And I'd particularly like to shout out to those who are watching in Wagga Wagga and in Adelaide, both places where I've got family. Maybe some of them are watching, who knows? 
Um, I'm the second wave. <laughs> a second wave arose in Australia and in most other developed Western countries out of the student and the anti-Vietnam War movements of the 1960s. But back then, we didn't call it feminism. We called it women's liberation. We had been marching and agitating for liberation for people in the third world, for workers in factories, and for students in what we saw then as imperialistic and militaristic universities. Liberation for everyone, but not for us. Increasingly, we women came to realise that we were doing the shit work of the revolution, roneoing the pamphlets, cleaning up the meeting rooms, doing bedroom duty with the charismatic guys who were our leaders. It was no coincidence that one of our very early slogans was, off our backs. <laughs> and that's exactly what it meant. We wanted to be active agents in the revolution, including the one that increasingly we saw was needed in our own lives. We were over being the chicks, never the speakers, let alone the leaders. The first women's liberation meetings were held in Australia in 1969, and by 1970, most of the big cities had at least one group where women began to examine their own oppression. We learnt that it was legal to pay us 25% less than men, that there were many occupations and jobs that simply were not available to us, that we could be and were physically denied entry to all sorts of places, including bars, and that whole worlds existed from which we were excluded just because we were women. You had to be married to get contraceptives. It might have been the era of the sexual revolution, but there were plenty of forces trying to ensure that we were not part of it. Now, they couldn't stop us having sex, of course, but it did mean that many of us got pregnant when we didn't want to. Abortion was illegal. If you needed to terminate a pregnancy, you had to go to a backyard operator and risk butchery or even death. I was very lucky to survive a botched backyard abortion in Melbourne in 1965. We also began to understand that femininity was a straitjacket, imposing behaviour that rendered us infantilised and inferior, that in order to conform to current standards of female attractiveness, we needed to be plucked and primped and our bodies squeezed into uncomfortable constraints known as girdles. Um, and young women today would be amazed to see what we used to wear. Um, and they weren't pretty, I can tell you that. We did, not know who, we did not know who we were or who we could become. We were the other. As Simone de Beauvoir, that first great chronicler of women's emancipation in the modern era, said, we were the second sex. We were adornments. We were there to have the children. We were not taken seriously. No one cared what we thought. So we decided to change that. We young women in the 1970s were scarcely conscious of what had gone before. We took for granted that we could vote, though mostly we scorned, uh, we scorned reformist politics back then. We were radicals who wanted nothing less than a total transformation of the capitalist and imperialist system and of relations between women and men. At that time, we saw little point in reaching back to the first wave. We were too busy inventing, reinventing politics and ourselves. And I must say that I'm very glad that things are different today and that there are connections between the women of the various waves. The women of the 1970s and the women of the 2010s can and do talk to each other. We learn and we share, and I hope that you will avoid the mistakes that we made. But we soon did realise that it was going to be necessary for us to adopt pragmatic and reformist goals in order to alleviate the patent inequality of our situation. But we wanted more. We wanted to also transform relations between women and men. We wanted equal pay and orgasms. And we wanted, and we knew that we needed, to reinvent ourselves. Consciousness Consciousness raising became the tool whereby we stripped away the ideology of femininity and we learnt, often painfully, to replace it with the scary new world of self-determination. We needed to reinvent what it meant to be a woman. We insisted that we not be determined by our maternal status. Now, we're still reinventing ourselves today. We're still evolving, pushing the boundaries, redefining who we are and who we can become. But at the same time as we were doing that, we second waivers were also busy reforming the world, and we were very successful. 
we can claim credit for a lot of very, very big reforms, and I just want to list a few of them. We were, we were responsible for federal and state anti-discrimination laws and the massive changes that stemmed from those, for rulings in favour of equal pay in the industrial courts, for changes to laws on everything from divorce to sexual assault to access to abortion, for the creation of women's services such as refuges, legal centres, health centres, rape crisis centres, for putting federally funded childcare on the national agenda, for getting contraceptives onto the PBS, for getting women into education, for getting women into jobs of all kinds everywhere, including those from which they had been barred until the advent of anti-discrimination laws, for setting up reporting mechanisms to monitor women's employment, pay and other markers of success, of progress, for creating women's uh, advice machinery to ensure that governments had regard for the impact on women of everything they did, for insisting that women be represented in public life, in our parliaments, on government and private sector boards, in the military and everywhere else they wanted to be for ensuring that Australia signed international covenants, such as the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, CEDAW, and joined the relevant UN bodies to ensure that women's equality was a global goal, not just a local one, and so much more. In addition, there was a flowering of creativity. We wrote books and poetry, we made films and theater and art, we danced and performed, explored our creativity and began developing a language to express who we were and to repudiate the man-made images we had been brought up to believe were the only way to define us. Our movement was far more diverse than current retelling would have it, but we lost that diversity and we need to explore how and why that happened. There are many lessons we can draw from the second wave, both from what we did and what we did wrong. We were totally secure in the knowledge that while we had not achieved everything we wanted and needed, we had made huge progress. It was just a matter of time, we believed, before the final bits fell into place and we achieved full equality. Not revolution, not the utopian dream that we had originally had, but at least the removal of all barriers to equality for all women. It never occurred to us that what we had fought and won was not secure. We assumed that once we had something, it was permanent and that history would not be reversed. We did not see John Howard coming. <laughs> and so we were totally unprepared for what happened after 1996 in this country. And what happened was this. The Prime Minister began systematically and ruthlessly to dismantle almost all of the reforms and protections for women that had been so painstakingly put together over the previous two decades. Howard tore into the Sex Discrimination Act, the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission that administered the Act, the Office of the Status of Women and the Affirmative Action Agency. He diluted the childcare rebate that I'd been so proud to help bring into life in 1993 when I worked for Prime Minister Paul Keating. And he slashed other forms of childcare assistance, turning an essential prop for women's employment into a welfare program only able to be accessed by those with very low incomes. He changed the family payments benefits arrangements so they penalised families where women worked and he began to put in place what would ultimately become the baby bonus, generous cash payments for having babies, which, unlike childcare, was not income tested. He had soon closed down or totally emasculated, I use the word advisedly, the officers and agencies that were there to facilitate or monitor women's progress towards equality especially in employment. It was nothing less than an all-out assault on the employment of women, especially of women with children. We learnt the bitter lesson that our trust in government had been betrayed by a government that was determined to turn back the clock and return women to the roles from which most of us were trying to escape. We are only just now, 20 years on, starting to recover from this. And it is the women of the third, fourth and subsequent waves who will need to ensure that this never happens again. I was 24 in 1969 when we held the first Women's Liberation Movement meeting in Adelaide and still in my 20s when we were consulted by Prime Ministers and Ministers in the Whitlam Government about some of the changes that I listed above. We were young when we changed history. Like the young students at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida, 
Young people can lead, they can change the world and they can make history. The young women of Australia and of the world are now in charge of our future. I look forward very much to following them. Well, how on earth to follow that brilliant Ann Summer. Thank you so much. That was really incredible. And a brilliant summation and excavation of the incredible and important work of the second wave, um, to which we are so indebted. Obviously, the first wave as well, but I think the, um, the incredible um, diversity of, um, of experience and, and aspiration and accomplishment uh, that we have seen by second wave activists and feminists has been extraordinary and, and must be reiterated and rearticulated again and again so that we deeply understand how much work has been done on our behalf by those women and men. So I want to thank you for that. That was really so helpful for me, <laughs> personally. So um, I think it's actually right on um, that I talk about third wave right after that because um, in the early 90s, when uh, we all, I think, globally experienced the rise of a kind of counterculture, a kind of resistance to the accomplishments of first and second wave activism, um, uh, there was this moment in 1992 when we, um, you know, I was in college, and what I recognized was that I had grown up believing in feminist ideals and principles and thinking that my body was my own and, you know, that I should be able to do whatever I wanted and that um, the protections that my mother and her comrades had fought for, for were going to be there for me in the same way that was just discussed, that they were set in stone, that laws had been changed. And, and, I, and I actually came of age to see that my president at the time, George Bush, was actually eradicating reproductive freedom, uh, reproductive freedom laws, just one after the other, you know, just felling them. Um, I saw the rise of police brutality simultaneously. Um, at the same time in the 90s, we were fighting the AIDS, HIV epidemic, and no one in the government wanted to discuss it. Um, there was a kind of silencing of the gay, queer community. Um, it was a moment in which there was a, a sense of um, just utter... Uh, a despair, really, among those of us who felt that so much had been won. You know, there was this great rollback. And when I looked around at my peers and my colleagues, my cohort, what I saw was a few of us who were upset and outraged, <laughs> and many, many more who felt um, very, very distant from any kind of social change movement. And that was especially true of the feminist movement. They were, um, you know, afraid to call themselves feminists. They felt that feminism was something that was in the past, that there were no problems anymore, um, and that there was really a kind of you know, deep disconnect, you know. And so when I looked around, coming from where I came from, and thought, oh my God, we all need to be mobilizing and we need to be talking about these things, there was a kind of silence, you know, in the gallery. You know, in the gallery. <laughs> and, and I thought, oh, okay, so my work right now is to make sure that we don't lose an entire generation. My work right now is to radicalize, to try to build a bridge, to try to craft a language that can bring in this generation that feels so alienated, so distant from feminism, from civil rights, from um, GLBT concerns and issues and visibility. So that was really the beginning of my movement into third wave was, you know, it was really like how do I um, articulate this as a pressing need? How do I do this? How do I stir this up? Um, and, you know, the first aspect of it 
was to actually talk to young women and find out why they felt so disconnected from feminism. And of course, so many of them felt disconnected because of the bad press, you know, that, that feminists were all man-hating, lesbian, you know, not that being lesbian is bad in any way, but that they were, you know, you know, and, you know, hairy and, you know, all of that. And so there was that whole contingent, which was, you know, okay, I, I could sort of engage that in a very direct way. But then there were the group of women who felt that that the term feminism and the movement of feminism didn't really come out of their lived experience. It wasn't organic to them. While they deeply believed in gender equality, while they deeply believed in the need for you know, all kinds of civil rights legislation, while they deeply believed in the things that the movement had been fighting for, they just didn't feel that they wanted to identify in that way. They felt that it was a totalizing identity that limited their choices. They felt that by choosing that kind of language, they were setting up a barrier between them and other people. And at that moment, there was a sense of wanting openness, wanting to not put labels on that would separate us. And so that, that was an interesting contribution to the discussion, I thought. And then in another group that I talked to and that you know, was very active and vocal, were women of color who felt very strongly that the women's movement had not spoken for them and was not inclusive enough and did not care about our concerns that included, you know, all the different ways that racism impacted and shaped our lives as women of color. So we had, you know, that group of women who were completely alienated from feminism and so then sort of, you know, not participating in a certain way. Um, and, then on the, and then once again, over here, there was a group of people, men, who felt that they were um, being constantly sort of criticized and vilified um, by the feminist movement and not thought of as potential allies and, and sort of rejected out of hand um, just because of their uh, anatomy, you know? And, and that was a problem, you know? So they felt a kind of alienation. And, and so, you know, oh gosh. And then there was a whole other group of people <laughs> who, um, oh my gosh, who felt that, you know, when they looked at, their, at, the, at the feminist leaders, um, that not only had they deconstructed the problematics of, of centralized leadership within the feminist movement, so there was this idea that, that there were, you know, one or two or three or four people telling us how to be feminists, and that was a problem, and that we needed to have a more um, diverse uh, leadership, right, that could name different issues and can speak in different languages about what was going on. Um, and you know, sort of, and then there was the group of people who felt like I'm looking at all of these leaders and not only are they centralized, but they're also completely burned out and exhausted <laughs> and I don't want to be like that. You know, so why should we try to change the world and give our whole lives and, and, and you know, not be certain that the changes that we have fought for are going to be permanent, right? So, so we birthed third, third wave, we birthed third wave in the context of all of these different um, uh, narratives. I mean, my thought was, okay, how do I take all of this in and create something uh, viable? And so third wave was born with the intention of um, uh, both emphasizing our similarities, right? So second wave, third wave, by saying that we care about many of the same things, but also second wave, third wave, that we are different and that we want to participate in movement activity in a different way. And we want to have different goals that we can articulate on our own and, and that many different people will be articulating per their experience in their different communities. So our first project, you know, with as third wave Direct Action Corporation, which was our first manifestation or iteration of Third Wave, um, included things like, you know, lesbian kissins on um, Republican senators' lawns. You know, um, we, we did um, protests at, at prison sites, you know, sites that were, that were um, identified to be future prisons in which we um, blanketed the area and refused to move, you know. I mean, there, were, there, were, there was this sense of how can we become multi-issue, inclusive, um, decentralized, sexy, 
Um, you know, I very much, when I was speaking a lot about third wave at that time, I told people, you don't need to call yourself a feminist. That's not important. What's important is that you're committed to the work of equality, not just of gender equality, but equality of all of us, so that every person, no matter what they look like, no matter what they do in bed, no matter you know, what they, what, how, how much money they make, no matter whatever, that they are treated with respect and dignity. And, and those were the kinds of ideas that, that we were planting um, to, to really energize the base, you know, to really make sure that we had this moment. I feel that so many, in so many ways, the work that we've been doing as, as third waivers, talking about all of this stuff for 20 years, has, has birthed the possibility of, of me too, of the fourth wave, you know, because I'm telling you, we were losing you. <laughs> I don't know how to express this enough. I mean, when people ask me, you know, is this time different than, than when you were talking about do me feminism in 1992 or 1994, when I was talking about the importance of sexual empowerment within a feminist context, I say absolutely this is different because the majority is saying me too and talking about you know consensual sex talking about eroticism talking about the the right to have sexual power when and pleasure when we were talking about it it was like us and 10 other people you know so so but 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 these are the seeds that i felt were so important to plant at that time so that w with this idea that they would ripen with this idea that we would not be um, you know that there would always be feminism <laughs> You know, that was my dream, you know, that we would always have it and not lose it. So I'm almost done with my time. Um, and I think, you know, it's interesting that we, in, in the film, we talked about, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw, who was a very important thinker within third wave feminism and intersectionality, which is fundamentally, in addition to this movement to make sure we didn't lose everyone and to pull them in and to create a kind of new narrative, you know, that was part of it, this understanding that um, all oppressions are connected, right? And that when you say that you're a feminist, it's, what does that mean, actually? Does that mean that you are anti-racist? Does that mean that you are not homophobic? Does that mean that you support immigrant rights? What does it mean to be a feminist? And so there was this, this important um, interrogation of that very notion and, and a, a, an important... Um, position taken by third waivers, most of us, I believe, I hope, that, you know, I, I almost went into deep vernacular, like, <laughs> don't come at me with some, sh you know, but I'm not going to do that. Um, you know, there was a deep understanding that, that feminism, ha in order to stay relevant, had to become about more than gender equality, right? It had to take into account all kinds of equality or else what would happen is we would get privileged white women into positions of power who would then be racist and homophobic and, you know, anti-immigrant rights and all, you know. So it was never, we, we, we had to really claim that, that that was not enough. Right? That just having representation of, of people who were not radicalized, who were not, you know, deeply committed to completely deconstructing the ruling class elite, the, 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 the structure of our very culture, hypercapitalism. I mean, you know, that, that, that we had to know that those women were going to care about us as well. And that is my time. And we can talk more later. <laughs> Hello. I'm trying to go paperless because I'm a millennial and I feel really bad about all the glitter last night and the effect on the environment, so we'll see how this goes. Okay. Uh, so my name is Nikia Louie. It's Nikia Neliwiyama Hope Louie. Uh, Nikia Neliwiyama means special one who is grandmother's daughter. Hope is after Hope Brady from uh, Days of Our Lives. <laughs> I'm a Gamora and Torres Strait Islander woman. 
I am a black woman, I am a queer woman, I am a colonized woman, I am a decolonizing woman, I am a feminist woman. But whilst I find power in my diasporas, in these constructions of identity and a place in a post-colonial world, I'm going to give you a confession about what's most important about me. And this may shock you, a bit nervous. Um, I'm not a rich, white, cis, hetero man. <laughs> and I don't want to be. And I don't want to have what they have. Uh, and I don't, I don't want to be a part of what they've created. I want to be part of creating a world that dismantles the values that this patriarchy has defined. <laughs> Ah, because that's what we all have in common, right? <laughs> and that to me is, well, I don't know if it's the fourth wave of feminism. I'm not that clever, but... And I don't know what the fourth wave of feminism is. I think the strength is in our chaos and, and that our, our differences unite us. But I will put up to me the picture of a woman who epitomizes the, the new wave of feminism that we live in. And that's my mother. She's probably really angry at me. She's sitting over there. <laughs> My mum has only recently identified as a feminist in the last couple of years. It wasn't that she wasn't ever a feminist. It was just something, I guess, she felt that she wasn't able to identify as, but can now, and I wonder what has changed. Um, my mum grew up in a tent on the outskirts of town because my grandfather got given dog tags to say he was an honorary white man. They couldn't live on the mission. My mum got told to leave school in Year 10 because it wasn't the done thing for Aboriginal people to, to go on to Year 11 and 12. She still managed to get a tertiary education. Uh, she was a healthcare worker and nurse. She worked with Aboriginal women. This picture, she's pregnant with me. And a few months after I'm born, she's about to leave a domestic violence relationship for me. And from then on, she's devoted her life to the Aboriginal, to Aboriginal women in the community to look at long-term strategies and community development on how do you empower those that are most vulnerable. She's only just called herself a feminist, but to me, I, that's what feminism is. So... We all know all inequalities are connected and privilege is thinking something isn't an issue because it's not an issue to you. That's why we're all in this room. It's also cultural colonization is not just the dictation of values and what marginalizes us, it's the dictation of what we look at as success. We can only dismantle archaic value systems and power structures through changing conversations. We need to create equality, not replicate its privilege. When we talk about women, we need to question what women we are referring to. We aren't referring to all women, we're referring to white women because that's the closest to the status quo. Silence empowers the oppressor. We can't let privilege uh, be invisible to the people who have it. To have the privilege of just being a woman means that your gender equality is biased to race. What we all need to understand and be ready to realise is that our political identity is not about having as much as those who have the most. It's about disrupting and dismantling power. Our feminism isn't limited to the rights of women. The same supremacy that devalues women is the same supremacy that devalues so many lives around this world. Just from my perspective as an Aboriginal woman, yes, we have many more female politicians in power, but my grandmother was forced into Aboriginal housing in Western Sydney where she eventually fell through a floor and died because they wouldn't fix it, the Housing Commission and that was less than 10 years ago. Yes, how amazing it is that there are these white feminist academics that I idolise and I get to meet now, but my mother grew up in a tent by the river. Um, and how great was it to have women's lib, but during the 60s and 70s, Aboriginal, Aboriginal women were forcibly, still forcibly being sterilised. Yes, how amazing it is to have the blog advanced style, I just love it, I want to give it a shout out. But my grandmother wore terry cloth robes and obsessed about cleaning the house every morning. Um, that's my memories of her cleaning the house because she was still afraid that even her grandchildren would be taken. 
How great is it that me and my best friend, Miranda Tapsell, get to be in, in vogue? But unfortunately, we're still the exception of the rule. Aboriginal women are still a conservative estimate, 45 times more likely to be victims of domestic violence. Um, last year, an Aboriginal woman was mauled to death by dogs, and that didn't even make the news. Aboriginal women have a higher rate of uterine cancer, diabetes, and our life expectancy is still 20 years less than the rest of Australia. I've lost, three, I've lost three family members to domestic violence and two to suicide in the last three years. They were all women. I'm one of the lucky ones. Now, the reason I say this is not to make you feel bad. I say this because we can use our solidarity to create something new. As individuals and communities, we have a multitude of histories, but with that comes the potential for solidarity because our differences can be our similarities. Different oppressions are experienced simultaneously. Race and gender and sexual oppression can be experienced at the same time because these aren't political issues. We need to stop looking at this as a political thing. The construction of that experience and that identity is political, but what we live is human. These are human issues. There is no true success, no true victories if they don't include all women, if they don't include our most vulnerable. Feminism is values, the same as any other construct in life, but values aren't people. If we forget about people, about all people, our victories will turn into our vices in a heartbeat. Our feminism isn't just about the equality or empowerment of women. Our feminism should be about how we change and define a new type of equality and empower the, the people and the community around us. Oh, sorry. Oh, look, I can work it. <laughs> I don't know if there's a fourth wave of feminism. I don't know if I want to call it a fourth wave of feminism because even though I have so much respect to all the feminists who went before me and all the women who have allowed opportunity, black or white or whatever, I still feel left out watching those presentations and during the speeches on the screen. So maybe it's feminist futurism, Maybe it's female resistance. I don't know, but I find it exciting because there is so much possibility to be had if change includes everyone. And I can speak to this from a true experience because it's my mother, it's my cousins, it's my aunties, it's black women who were never included in the previous waves of feminism who have made me able to stand in front of you today and talk about my experience and have visibility. I'm a success and I'm a success because of them. So if we can find equality through feminism, it's these women we need to listen to. Thank you. That was Nakia Louie, and she was with mega-feminists Rebecca Walker, Anne Summers and Barbara Kane, talking about the waves of feminism. We were at All About Women 2018. And more talks from the festival are coming your way next week, so make sure you subscribe. Ideas at the House is available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>